today we will be uh, continuing in our series on invitation to retreat. If you've been here for the past three weeks, um, thank you. Excuse me for a minute. Hopefully this doesn't mess the mic up here. Excuse me. Um, so uh, t- today is our first, uh, fourth uh, sermon in the series, Invitation to Retreat. And uh, what I want to do before I actually get into the sermon is to kind of give a recap of where we've been going the past few weeks so that that could set up our time for today. I would also encourage you to pray for Pastor Steve as he continues on his retreat um, he's on a 12-week sabbatical, for those of you guys who don't know, so continue to pray for him. He needs some much-needed rest um, and restoration. Also pray for me, too, as well. Um, I'm about to run out of button-up shirts here, <laughs> much as I've been preaching recently. So, uh, <laughs> so invitation to retreat. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we started with sermon number one, the invitation to retreat, which was talking about the busyness of life that often hinders us from being able to fully encounter the presence of God and just to be present um, in God's presence. And so we defined this invitation to retreat as an extended block of time where you make yourself exclusively available to God alone in a different and less distracting place where your focus is on hearing from God directly. We talked about why retreat is necessary, and we talked about three specific things that oftentimes, sometimes our time with God can be a place where our heads are filled with knowledge about God, but our hearts don't really connect with God during that period. We talked about the fact that the deepest change that we need and desire, that we are powerless to bring about those changes in our lives. And also we talked about the fact that we become what we behold. And so as we behold Jesus, the person of Jesus, we become transformed in his presence. We talked about how to prepare for a retreat. We talked about places where we can go to retreat here in Orlando, And we also talked about what to do on retreat, that our focus should be on listening from God. And then we closed that sermon with the fact that God desires intimacy with his people. He desires to meet with us. We also talked about the fact that God initiates contact with us, that he gives us promptings to pull away, to stop the busyness of life, to disconnect and to engage with him. And finally, in that space of solitude that he's able to teach us directly. The following sermon, we talked about self-examination. What is self-examination? Being able to see ourselves as God does. And we talked about why this was necessary, that we can't see ourselves, that we have corrupted lenses through which we view ourselves and how we view other people. We talked about it's necessary also because self-examination allows us to be able to walk in the freedom that Christ provides. And we also talked about the fact that Self-examination also enables us to help others. Matthew 7, where it was saying, in order to remove the speck from your brother's eye, you need to be able to remove the log that's in our own eye. And being able to get past factual information to the truth of where, where our hearts are. And so the whole sermon was essentially saying that retreat allows us to be able to more closely assess ourselves, to be able to see through the lens of God. And we close that sermon talking about the examine, which is a way of daily reviewing our day through the lens of God. 
Last week's sermon, we talked about prayer. And retreat also, again, being the space where we can engage in the kind of prayer that Jesus desires. I talked about my past experience with prayer where it often felt like it was an appetizer. It was never like prayer couldn't hold its own, that prayer was always something that we did before we did something else, or it was always the tag end of something that we already did, and how easily our hearts can get out of tune. The stresses of life, the concerns of life can really pull on our heartstrings, and those things easily get, out of, get our lives and our hearts out of tune. And this space of prayer allows us to be retuned by God so that our affections can be realigned with his. We talked about Jesus' view of prayer. The first of all, that he prioritized prayer. That was something that he did consistently. The ministry stopped when it was time for him to pray. That he had constant fellowship with the Father. And we also talked about the fact that he was infuriated when the places of prayer become corrupt. We also talked about the type of prayer that Jesus does not like, hypocritical prayer, the prayer that's the selfie prayer that you kind of post for everyone else to see. And we also talked about the fact that he doesn't like the other kind of hypocritical prayer, which is for the sake of being heard where there's a lot of wordiness, where there's a showiness before God. And he's saying, I don't want that kind of prayer. And we outline the kind of prayer that God desires in Matthew the Lord's Prayer. And so we went through each section of that prayer, and we talked about that kind of prayer that Jesus desires from us. And so again, tying all of these things into the concept of retreat, that retreat allows us to pull away from the busyness of life, to not only examine our lives, but to also encounter God through prayer in a way that's less distracted than we normally would because of the busyness of our lives. So today, we will be looking at Scripture, and specifically, encountering the person of God through Scripture. And I'll set up our time, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into our sermon for today. In 1999, I transitioned to Florida. Um, I had pretty much grown up in Atlanta uh, for most of my life, and um, there was much talk in 1999 about what the year 2000 was going to be like, right? Y2K and uh, didn't know if the computers will still be working and all kinds of craziness was going on in 1999 for those of us who were around. And that was a transitional year for me. Um, Prior to that time, I had been heavily involved volunteering at my church. I had done vacation Bible school. I was teaching Sunday school. I was uh, doing rap ministry, believe it or not. Um, I had done prison ministry. Um, Just a lot of different volunteer things. A a huge portion of my life was church stuff. Um, I was also working full-time. I I had a trade. I had went to school to be a barber, so I was working as a barber. And what you can tell by my haircut, (laughs) right? (laughs) And um, I had finished up my associate's degree, and I was very uh, unsettled. I kind of felt like there was something else that God had for me to do. I didn't know what it was. And I was really miserable. I mean, I remember one time when I was at work, one of my coworkers said to me, why do you even come to work? You know, I was just really, I had a really negative countenance. And I decided, well, what is it that I really like to do? What is it that my heart connects with? And the only thing I can think of was church stuff. I mean, I wasn't working for the church. I was just volunteering. And so 
I decided I wanted to go to Bible school, and my objective was, number one, to become more familiar with God's Word, because I would listen to preachers on the radio, and I would love the way that they would break down the, the passages and come up with these analogies and so on and so forth. And so there was a part of me that was attracted to biblical literacy, number one, and number two, this idea of wanting to possibly work with youth. I mean, I was already working in youth ministry. And so I left, packed up my 1992 Nissan uh, Stanza at the time, had rims on it, you know, and I was making my way to Florida. And <clears throat> I arrived in 1999 in the fall, and the school that I attended was a really small school outside of Tampa in a small city called Newport Ritchie, affectionately known to some of the people there as Newport Nowhere. There was pretty much two buildings, a bunch of cows, and sandhill cranes. Now, from a kid coming from Atlanta, we didn't see birds that big, you know? And so I decided I just need to keep my windows up. You know, y'all stay over there. I'm going to be here. We're cool. I don't like the wildlife too much. And I found myself uh, entering this new space where I was at the home of one of my professors, and we're watching The Matrix. You know, like, who, who does that? Right? When we're talking about philosophy and all this biblical stuff, um, I, I got introduced to these new biblical categories of thinking, uh, soteriology, you know, uh, pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit, uh, eschatology, the study of the end times, and all these big words and all these new concepts I was being introduced to when I transitioned to Florida. Um, I not only became uh, aware of new thinking in terms of God, but also denominations um, and the, the divides between the different denominations, but not only that, the doctrinal camps. There was a lot of doctrinal camps that I just did not know about that existed prior to me coming to Florida and going to, to Bible school. I became aware of the tribalism that exists within Christianity and how some of these groups spoke about each other in private. A whole new world for me. And with the progression of time, not only at Bible school, but after, actually after I graduated, there was a sense of dissonance I began to feel because in the camp that I was in, there was this belief that we have the truth of God. We're right. But how that translated to how people lived, there was a little bit of tension there that I began to observe, right? And the belief was, well, if you have good doctrine, and if you study the Bible well, then you will think well, and because you think well, then you will live well. And it was supposed to be like this seamless transition between all three. But I began to see that some of that didn't really translate very well. I'll give you an example, there were professors who ended up falling in sin, and I'm not talking just hanky-panky, trying to slap your hand type of sins, like serious stuff. There were classmates who, through the progression of time, had drifted from the faith. There were friends that I had that had addictions, had good theology, but there was a disconnect, marriages falling apart, the love that was supposed to that they talked about didn't quite see in practice. And even the arrogance in some of their positions, to me, kind of rubbed against this idea of like, well, wow, how come the, the truth that these guys are saying that they have, that it's not translating into life where it really matters? And it stuck with me. 
how good theology does not translate where it matters in the grind of everyday life. And so I began to observe that the issue was less about the theological information that you accumulate, but more so how the heart engages and encounters God through his word. That really the issue wasn't information, but how our hearts engage when we are in God's presence. And so the first central idea I want to kind of set our time up with is this, number one, that the word of God is more than a text to be studied, but rather the word is a person to be encountered deeply in relationship. I'll say that again. The word of God is more than a text to be studied, but rather the word is a person to be encountered deeply in relationship. It's more than a book, much more than a book. Number two, if we don't encounter the person of God deeply through his word, our life will produce no fruit. No fruit. And number three, our deepest need is not the accumulation of information but rather transformation. Our deepest need is not the accumulation of information through our Bible study, our biblical study, but our deepest need is that our hearts be transformed. And the way that this happens is when we encounter God in profound and deep ways. So let's pray. Father God, I pray that during our time today, as we look at your word, We're not looking at mere words on a piece of paper, but that we are encountering the God of the universe. That you are a personal God, that you make yourself known to us. Give us grace to hear. Give us grace to enter your presence and sense that you are here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to read a couple verses from John chapter 15. If you're able, if you can please stand. And we'll jump into our time for today. John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We're going to start at verse 1. John 15, 1 says, I am the vine... I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. Third time he's saying this. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so prove and so prove to be my disciples. You may have your seat. The way in which Jesus Jesus described his personal and intimate encounter between us and him through his word is by the word abiding. And he uses this several times in this section of scripture. That it's more than just accessing information but it's engaging with a person. It's encountering a person. And this encounter isn't a frivolous encounter. It has a profound impact on our lives. And so point number one is this. The Father and the Son work together to make it possible for us to encounter God deeply. The Father and the Son work together to make it possible for us to encounter God deeply. He makes that provision for us. For any of you guys who are into sports, athletics, you have a sports team, you have an owner, you have a general manager, you have the coaches, and their whole objective is to get the best squad possible. I want the best general manager who can recruit talent. I want to have a top coach who knows how to work with different personalities and who can get the best out of athletes. I want to be able to have coaches. I want to have the best players on my team so that when we recruit new players, they enter into an ecosystem where the potential for greatness is limitless. And Jesus is saying, I am the true vine. I am the true source of life. And not only that, my father is the vine dresser. And so when you talk about being able to produce fruit, You've got the best in the business right here, the father and the son. And so right from verse one, he says, I am the vine, the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. So already he's setting up the scenario where he's making the provisions for growth to take place. So he makes the provision, he makes it possible for us to be able to encounter God deeply and profoundly. Verse 2 continues, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it produces more fruit. So Jesus identifies two types of branches here. The first, that's connected, but it's not really bearing, and it serves no purpose. Makes you kind of wonder how it is that a branch can be connected to a vine but is not able to produce fruit. Sermon for another time. And the second branch that he describes is the one that's connected and it's bearing fruit. And he describes this process of pruning the branches, cleaning the branches in order for for those branches to produce more fruit. And he goes on in verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word 
that I have spoken to you. And so point number two is this. Secondly, our being cleansed by the word is essential to us encountering God deeply. That our being cleansed by the word is essential for us to encounter God deeply. He says this in verse 3, you are already clean. This is something that Jesus already affirmed a couple chapters back in chapter 13. And we're going to take a look at that. And you may recall the situation where Jesus is with his disciples and he's washing their feet. And in the middle of washing the disciples' feet, Peter says, pulls his feet back and he says, no, may it never be. You're never going to wash my feet. And of course, in that culture, there was a lot of dirt. You know, a lot of people would be walking and it was typical for whoever the host was to wash the feet because they sat close to the ground. And Peter says, never, may it never be. In chapter 13, verse 8, he, he says, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answers him and he says, if I do not wash, you have no share with me. You have no share with me. And the message that Jesus is trying to communicate, even in this simple act of foot washing, is that it's only by my cleansing are you made clean. It's only by my doing are you made clean. And so Peter gets the message that Jesus is trying to communicate. And he says, okay, well, if this external washing is simply a sign of my submission to your agenda, I'm all in. Wash all of me then. Wash my whole body. And then Jesus says to him, nah, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Same word. Same word. He is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. So again, he's talking about Judas, who is the one that's not clean. And so Jesus already affirms that the, that, uh, the disciples are clean. But despite them being clean, look at what he says in verse 4. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Point number three is simply this. The practice of abiding in the person of God through his word is the lifeblood of every believer. The practice of abiding in the person of God through his word is the lifeblood of every believer. And simply what I mean by that is this, that despite him telling the disciples that they were clean, he still says to them, you must abide. The only way that you're going to produce fruit is by abiding. It's not by simply being clean, it's by abiding in him. And it's very important for us to get that distinction because a lot of us may fall onto the false sense, this false sense of security that because I'm saved, I'm good. God wants more than your salvation. God wants your fruit. God wants your fruit. And the way that this happens is when we abide in him. The word abide is a funny word, and I was trying to think of other words and phrases that I could think to really describe what this means. It, it, it literally means to remain, to stay, 
to dwell, to be present. And then he gives us this word picture of a vine. He starts this off in verse 1, where he talks about being, um, abiding in, in the vine. I don't know if any one of you have um, seen what a vine looks like. We have a passion fruit vine. We had one a couple years ago that had a bunch of passion fruit that was in the backyard. We had so much that we had to send some off to my, <laughs> to my family. You know, everybody got some, some passion fruit because it was producing so much, so much fruit. But if you get a vine, it wraps around everything. Even other trees, like even right now, the, the passion fruit vine that we have is going up into the tree. Anything that it makes contact with, it has these little shoots, and it just wraps around everything. And so it's this picture of this interconnectedness, this wovenness, this intimate connection between the vine and whatever else it's wrapped up in. And so visually, I hope you get the picture that when Jesus says, abide in me and I in you, it's this interconnectedness that we need to have with the Father that he enables us to have. And he's saying that this is the only way whereby you will produce fruit. It's the lifeblood of every believer. And my argument in this series is that times of retreat allow our hearts to get interwoven and deeply connected with God, just like the vine and the branches are interconnected. And so he continues, point number four, in verse five. Fruitfulness comes as a natural result of encountering God deeply through his word. Fruitfulness comes as a natural result of encountering God deeply through his word. Verse 5 says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, again, that same phrase, the second time he's using it, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nada. The practice of intimate encounter with God produces a fruitfulness. This is the identifying mark of those who abide in him, that there is an abundance, there is an outflow as a result of this connection that we have with God. And if we're disconnected branches, we produce no fruit. No fruit. And so he continues in verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and are burned. And so there's a corresponding consequence for those branches that are not abiding in him. And he simply states, states that they are thrown away. And verse 2 says something similar, that those branches that do not bear fruit are taken away. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, and again, this is the third time that he's saying this, and now he's substituting the word words for I. Abide in me and my words in you. So he's equating the words of God to the person of God. Ask 
whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And point five is this. The fruit of answered prayer confirms that we are intimately abiding in the person of God. The fruit of answered prayer confirms that we are intimately abiding in the person of God. We read this last week, 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. This is the confidence that we have in him, that as we pray according to God's will, anything according to the will of God, he hears us. And so when our wishes align with his, God says, I'm going to answer that prayer. And so that's a part of the evidence, the confirmation that we are intimately abiding in him when we pray according to his will, he answers our prayer, the fruit of answered prayer. And so there's more to this. Verse 8 says, by this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Point number six is this. Our fruitfulness not only glorifies God, but it affirms our identity as his disciples. Fruitfulness not only glorifies God, but it affirms our identity as his disciples. More than mere profession, there is something that our lives produce that affirms not only to ourselves but to others that we belong to God. And it's interesting that oftentimes we determine or we say that a person is saved based on their profession, even though profession is important. The profession of your faith is important, but it's a whole lot more than what you say with your mouth. It's the fruit that your life produces that lets you know if you're truly a believer. It's more than a mental process. And this is coming from the, the, the mouth of Jesus. This, these aren't my words. Jesus is saying that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. If we are disciples of God, if we are abiding in God, there must be fruit that's consistent with that. And so this fruit demonstrates the power of the one that's working within us. The fruit is the external sign that God is working an inner transformation inside of us. And this is why fruit's important. A tree is known by its fruit. Jesus said that. Jesus talked about also, uh, the scriptures talk about in 2 Timothy, that there are a group of people in the end times who would have an appearance of godliness, but they deny the power. And this is why fruit is so important. And even when we look at false teachers all throughout scripture, false teaching is really more than what a person teaches verbally. It's the way they live. It's the way they live. So there's always a corresponding fruitfulness, what our life produces, that goes beyond the words that we say. And so in closing, 
It's essential that we as believers continually encounter the person of Jesus deeply through his word. When we encounter God's word, when we read God's word, and I'm not talking about people who are not saved yet and who just come to Christ. I'm talking about after you have been saved, it's important and essential that you continue to encounter the person of Jesus deeply through his word, that there be an ongoing depth, that there be an ongoing interwovenness and interconnectedness to God. Why? Because apart from abiding in God through his word, we can do nothing. Got good works. Got that. Check. God wants more than good works. He wants to produce that fruit within us. And the only way that that happens is our interconnectedness with God. Number two, being clean, being clean is insufficient. It's an insufficient precondition for bearing fruit. We must abide in him. God wants more than your salvation. He wants fruit. He's glorified when we bear much fruit. And only he can produce that fruit in our lives. And the space of retreat, pulling away from the busyness of our lives, allows our heart to connect with his. Allows those divine to to wrap around our hearts and it gets interconnected so that we can produce the fruit that only he can in our lives. And so how do we know? How do we know when we are encountering God intimately? What, What are some of those signs? Well, I have four. We know we're encountering God intimately, deeply, and profoundly when these things happen. First of all, when we experience a sense of wonder in the presence of God. When we're struck in God's presence, where we're overcome by God's presence. The psalmist says in uh, chapter 8, verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glories above the heavens. In Psalm 148, 13, he says this, let them praise the name of the Lord for the name, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above the earth and heaven. It's the sentiment of great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. It's the sentiment of bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. Or great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. There's this sense of awe and magnificence when we read about God in his word. It's recognizing the great distance, the great chasm between you and God, yet your, your heart is still drawn to it. When your affections are captured by him. Number two, experiencing renewed affections. And what I mean by this is a cycle of longing for God, pursuing him, and a sense of felt fulfillment in this circle. 
It's the sentiment in Psalm 84 that says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of God. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. It's a longing for God. Psalm 42, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Do you hear the longing in that? This desire just to be with God. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. There's a longing for God. And not only is there a longing, but there's a desire to do whatever's necessary to enter into the presence of God. Psalm 27. Anthony just read this. One thing have I asked of the Lord, That will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, experiencing renewed affection for God, not just talking about it, but actually experiencing those affections. Number three, experiencing functional dependency. Experiencing functional dependency. You know, we talk about trusting God and, oh, yeah, I I trust God. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But when it really comes down to it, do we really put our hands, our lives in his hands? It's an attitude that's marked less by a controlling disposition when things don't go our way. It, It reflects itself in us being less reactive when things don't go our way. It it says, I trust you with my life. Psalm 27, it's this sentiment. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it is they who shall stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. It's more than just saying these words. It's our heart truly resonating with what the psalmist is saying. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, Though its waters foam and roar, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in her midst. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. I hope these pictures, these descriptions help our hearts to understand what it looks like when we truly are experiencing this dependency on God, that it bleeds over into how we view life, that it bleeds into our reactions with other people when life does not go our way. There is a tangible, observable difference that it makes 
when we truly experience God through his word. And the fourth sign, experiencing an increased awareness of the depth of our sin. When we encounter God deeply and profoundly, we become much more aware of the little things that we do that other people may not pick up on, but we know. We know when we're wrong. We don't gloss over our sins, but we also don't beat ourselves up either over it. There's a corresponding brokenness over our sin towards other people. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5 says this. Here's a picture of it. And he says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When we truly understand God, we become so much more aware of the nuances of our sin. It's the sentiment in Psalm 19. Verse 12, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. An awareness that sin can have dominion over us. Again, Psalm 119, a bunch of these in the Psalms. Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Intimacy with God increases our sensitivity to our sin. In closing, it is essential for us to encounter the person of Jesus through his word. And not only that, but that we abide in him, that we remain in him so that we can produce the fruit that only he can produce in our lives. I've included in the last slide a practice that many in our Christian tradition, and not only just in the Christian tradition, there are other uh, traditions that use this similar format called Lectio Divina, which translated simply means a sacred reading. It's an approach to approaching God's word that is less academic and more personal Um, Often when we open up God's word, it can become an academic exercise of, you know, uh, the Greek and so on and so forth. And again, there's a place for that. Don't hear me saying that that's wrong. But there are times when we need to slow down the pace at which we move. And I kind of think of it like, you know, if you go to the beach, and I don't know if you've ever done this for the the beach lovers here. (laughs) Um, It's the slow walk on the beach where you just soak it in, where you, where you just allow the, the smell of the ocean just to kind of hit your nose, you know? You know how they paint these commercials where this person is just walking on the beach and it just looks like they're just, you know, roses or whatever? <laughs> and you allow yourself to become aware of your senses, of, of, of the beauty of the, the sunset, how, how the, the, the water is just glistening, you know, with the, with the sunshine reflecting off of it. And you're walking on the beach and, I don't know, maybe on a normal day you wouldn't notice it, but you look down and you see how the waves are crashing against the sand. And you kind of look down and you see the thousands and millions of shells that are uh, in the sand 
and you just kind of pick them up and you begin to observe the, the beauty in each one of these shells that are so distinctly different from one another, and you try to find a match to one, and it's like impossible. You can't do it. There's so many of them. And it reminds you of how great and vast God is. And so this approach to looking at Scripture is less like the, the jogging, the, the one who's exercising on the beach, right? <laughs> so you have the person who's running on the beach for exercise, and then you have another person that's kind of soaking it in. This approach to reading Scripture is that slow walk. It's that reflective walk. And it has several different movements, and depending on the resources that you use to, um, to, to understand more about it, the first one is to sit in silence before you approach God's word, to just to sit in silence and just to pray that God would make you receptive to whatever it is that he would want to reveal to you. The first reading of God's word would be to pay attention to what stands out to you, what words jump off of the page. And normally when you're doing Lectio Divina, these are short passages of scripture. So normally no more than maybe about five, um, five verses. And the whole point is to kind of chew on it. You know, like if you had that piece of steak, I, I don't eat steak. I eat Impossible Burgers. So um, you kind of savor the flavor, right? And you want to pay attention to what stands out. The second reading, that's step number three, is to read and ask yourself, what in my life right now currently is this speaking to? God is always speaking. And often, we're not really on God's wavelength. A lot of times, we're out of tune with what God is saying to us. And so we're asking as we're reading, what is it that this particular passage of Scripture is speaking to right now? Third reading is to respond, what is God inviting me to? Not only what is God saying, but what is he inviting me to? Step number five, to read again and rest, resting in what God has said and trusting that he will enable me to respond accordingly. And step number six is a resolve to live by the power of the Spirit. My prayer for us, God's people, is that we not be a people that simply read God's word. Yes, read. Please don't hear me not say that we don't need to read the word of God. But my prayer is that we encounter God deeply and that we abide in him. And as we abide in him, as we're connected with him, that he would produce the fruit in our lives that only he can. Times of retreat allow our hearts to get reset. I really do believe that a retreat is almost like a vacation that we, that we needed so bad that we don't know that we need it. There are times when we need things so bad that we don't realize how bad we need it. And I pray that in that space, God would begin to deepen our connection to him. And it will reflect itself in the fruit that our lives produce.